You're listening to episode 123 of 88 Cups of Tea with Yin Chang. Am I doing this right? <laughs> Hi, I'm your host, Yin Chang, and thanks for joining me on 88 Cups of Tea. This podcast is created to leave you feeling motivated from interviews with storytellers, where we learn how they create opportunities for a successful career without losing sight of the values that make us human. Woo, that was a really long run on sentence. What's up, storytellers? I have some huge news to announce. Moonlin and I will be moving to New York City and we'll be doing a massive road trip from California to New York next week and 88 Cups of Tea will soon be produced in the publishing capital of America. If you're new to our show and just started listening, Moonlin is my girlfriend and she's also the co-producer of 88 Cups of Tea. Not only is she the person I bounce ideas off of, she also helps us edit our episodes and is the reason why the conversations are concise and smooth. Now, our next big news is we'll be doing 88 Cups of Tea meetups along the way throughout our road trip. I shared this news first with our community in our private Facebook group, and we are all so excited about this. Moonlin and I are about to plan our big trip, and our route depends on where you all are at. If the idea of meeting up with us at a local coffee shop is exciting to you, be sure to reach out to me on Twitter at 88 Cups of Tea to let me know which city you're at. I want to say hi to as many of you as possible. So if there is a higher concentration of listeners in a certain city, we're going to note that as a stop along the way. Also, I would so appreciate it if you could help me spread the word by sharing it on your Twitter, your Facebook, or Instagram. Or if you have any friends that listen to 88 Cups of Tea, text them or email them to let them know about the meetup too. I am so excited about this and I can't wait to meet you all. On to the next part of our intro. We recently restocked our limited edition 88 Cups of Tea mugs with only one box of mugs. I was thinking it would be so cool to have different designs of 88 cups of tea mugs available for a limited amount of time each year. So our mugs can become actual collectible items. How cool is that? We first announced this in our private Facebook group, and I can't believe our last box of mugs are already halfway gone. So if you'd love a mug for yourself to give you a boost of encouragement throughout the day before they are completely sold out for good, head over to 88cupsoftea.com and click on the button at the very top that says shop. I also want to say a huge thank you to all of you who left a rating and a review for 88 Cups of Tea. I know it's a whole process to get through all the steps and it means the world to us that you took the time. And thank you so much to our listener, Hamor Baika, for recently leaving the incredibly kind review. Hamor rated us five stars and wrote, If kindness had a voice, it would sound like Yin Chang. She's so compassionate that you can hear it and feel it through your gadget. She asks the questions that I'd like to ask and more. I just listened to the episode with Atia Abawi during which Yin asked about helpful organizations that people can reach out to. I'm so grateful for that question. I keep hearing about the Facebook group. Maybe I'll have to reactivate my account just to join. Yin, maybe if I succeed in my endeavors, perhaps one day I'll be on the show to tell you directly how amazing you are. Oh my gosh, Hamor, thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to leave such a thoughtful review. There's no doubt that you'll succeed in your endeavors, and I am so thankful to have listeners like you in our community. Now on to the next part of our intro. You heard me mention our private Facebook group a couple of times. In case you're curious, it's a space for fellow listeners and storytellers to connect and hang out. 
We have weekly threads where we check in with each other about storyteller-related things, and I also chat very closely with our group members to involve them with our podcast and community-related decisions that help shape the growth and direction of 88 Cups of Tea, including requests for who you'd love to hear next on the show and live video catch-ups and book unboxings. If these are things that are totally up your alley, we would love to hang out with you in our group at 88cupsoftea.com slash FB group. It's so fun in there and I'm really proud to share that our group is filled with the kindest and most caring members. Join us over at 88cupsoftea.com slash FB group. Now on to our guest. I am thrilled to have Arvin Amadi on our show. Arvin is the author of Down and Across. BuzzFeed says Amadi writes with head and heart, captivating readers with passages that leap beautifully from the pages. Publishers Weekly describes his debut as witty, smart, and inspiring, and the Washington Post says it's a humorous and deeply human coming-of-age story. In today's episode, Arvin walks us through the inspiration behind Down and Across. We unpack how to manage writing difficult and emotional scenes with your characters, how to maintain authenticity in your story throughout your editing process, and how to improve your craft through reading within your genre. We also discuss why it's crucial to seek feedback from your writing community, and Arvin shares tips on writing in a first-person point of view that's different from your own. Arvin will be taking over our Instagram stories for the release of his episode, and it's going to be so much fun. Be sure to catch his takeover on Instagram at 88 Cups of Tea. Now let's dive right in. Hey, everyone. I am so excited to have Arvin with us. How are you doing? Thank you for being on the show. I'm great. I'm so excited to be here. I'm repping the BK. That's right. Repping that L line. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Well, not for long. You know, L-line. And I were talking like the L, the main lifeline, Brooklyn's lifeline is shutting down. That's so sad. But he's still repping it proudly, even though it's going to be gone for a few years. It's going to come back soon. <laughs> Thank you for being here. And we have quite a few listeners who are fans of yours. So I'm very excited about this. People know you already in our community and you're actually friends with several of them. So that's going to be fun just to hear your story and get deeper. Before we jump into all the details about your book, Down and Across, why don't we kick it off and start with your background in regards to when you first fell in love with writing or storytelling? I've been telling stories for a very, very long time, but I've only been telling them in novel form for a relatively short period of time. I grew up loving books like so many of us. I just read whatever I could get my hands on. I was a big Harry Potter head. I read Charlotte's Web and everything by E.B. White, A to Z Mysteries, so many books as a kid, I gave writing a shot. I started writing this book when I was about 10 years old called The Adventure of Jack and Skipper. Oh, cute. And so you can guess, Jack was the boy and Skipper was the dog. That's so cute. And then from there, you were super young then, but then did you realize that you could be an author or is that something that wasn't really realized till a lot later? It wasn't until it wasn't, right? I wrote a few chapters of that book and I was like, I have written the greatest thing in the world. You know, precocious 10-year-old Arvin was like, let me look up agents and get this published. I queried agents at 10 years old. I feel like the responses I got were just, dude, you're 10. Get off your parents' email account. (laughs) No, I'm sure they were a lot nicer than that, but that's how I felt. And so I gave up. I let that like moment of failure affect me. And then I started writing some poetry. I still read. And then I got to high school. And in high school, this is really sad. But in high school, I fell off of reading fiction. I kind of fell out of it for a couple of years. I think I rushed into adult literary fiction too early. I read Ned Vizzini and some other YA, and I was like, I'm ready for big boy books. And they were just slow. Now as an adult, I can appreciate literary fiction. But as a teenager, I was just like, eh, I guess this isn't for me. And at the same time, I was getting really, really involved in my high school newspaper. 
that was where I got most of my writing out, my storytelling and story getting. I was a really active journalist from high school and college. I was editor of my high school paper, and then I wrote for like pretty much every section of my college newspaper also. What were you majoring in? Computer science and political science. That's very fun. I had Asian parents, and so I had to study <laughs> something practical, right? Trust me, because I'm the artist in my family, and I came home from high school, and I was like, I want to be an actor. Mom was like, hell no, your ass is going to go get a pharmacology degree <laughs> or a business. So it's either way, you choose your route, you choose your fate. This is sort of Scott's struggle. Mine was a little different because you knew you loved acting, right? I didn't know that I loved writing at the time. It was a hobby, but I think I just didn't realize it was a hobby that could actualize into a career or anything. I was really into politics in high school and I was really into tech in Silicon Valley in college. And I really love those fields and still do. And I feel a bit of FOMO every time like I talk about tech or politics or something like those were actually things that I really enjoyed doing. But I think I loved them because I was able to inject my storytelling passion in there. Mm. politics at its core is understanding people and their stories and trying to create a society where like you can help them thrive and and technology is like you're creating these products are supposed to work for millions of people out there and you're creating user profiles and things like that in tech we always talk about that people from kansas would do x y and z whereas cool tim who's 20 years old would do these things you know you're Mm -hmm. putting yourself people's shoes. I was always a storyteller, but I didn't realize that I didn't make that connection, that through line just yet. And so I felt really lost for a lot of high school and college. I acted like I knew what I was doing, but I was lost as to my future path. Were you a good student in high school? I was. Yeah. I I, like, I pulled good grades and I did a lot of activities again, because I didn't know what I was supposed to be doing. So I tried everything. So I got into good college and did fine in college too and was involved also. So school was never an issue, thankfully. Okay, so your ass did not get beat for bringing home a B. That's the thing. At the time, and I think that's why I wrote my character as this failing, really, really lost person because that's how it felt. Like I did bring home B pluses. Oh my God, boy, I'm scared for you. I don't know if you got the hanger, but damn. Oh, I I mean, no, I I, have gotten pretty heated arguments. And that's the thing. Now in hindsight, I can be like, I actually did well in high school, but it didn't feel like it at the time. (laughs) I went to the science and tech magnet nerd school. Which one? Thomas Jefferson. Oh, yeah, that's a good school. Yeah, it was a really good school. I mean, it was public. But and that's the thing. I think compared to my classmates, I felt like a failure too. compared to my classmates when I brought home a beat. That kind of reminds me about what my little sister is saying. She's graduating college this May. You said in high school you felt mediocre because everybody else is super smart. But I feel like most high school kids feel super smart in high school. And as soon as they hit the college, they're like, oh, my God, I'm like the dumbest person here. What was your (laughs) transition like from high school to college? I think I realized I didn't need to be the best in grades and everything else. I started to chill out. In high school, I was hyper competitive and was really affected when things didn't go my way in terms of grades or class elections or whatnot. I say that like I chilled out in college and yet I loved my high school experience so much. I think because it was so intense and dramatic and high stakes. And maybe that's why I write YA. Bringing it back to when you realized, what was that catalyst where you're like, I know that you're writing for school papers and you're writing for all the sections and stuff like that. Where was that turning point where you were like, you know what, I'm going to dive in and write my own book that I want to have published. The interesting thing is, I feel a lot of times we hear, I had a moment of inspiration or there was this turning point where all of a sudden it all clicked, right? It wasn't like that for me. It was a slow burn. My senior year of college, I wasn't writing for the paper anymore. I think there was something about seniors stepping out early. And so I felt this itch to write. And around the same time, I felt very confused about where my life was going in the long run. I ended up seeing this TED Talk by Angela Duckworth about grit. 
It's a wonderful TED Talk. You should check it out if you haven't already. It's really good. But at the time where I was in life, it terrified me. I felt that the best way to address that terrifying feeling was to start writing, right? My feelings on paper. And those feelings ended up turning to a story about a boy who runs away to meet a fictional version of Angela Duckworth. I didn't have a plot. I didn't know too much. I just wanted this character to be like me and have the same struggles and concerns and anxieties as me. And that's really how Down and Across was born. It wasn't like, this is the greatest thing in the world. I need to get this published and I'm going to be a writer. And I found my calling. It was just that I thought it was a really like therapeutic, helpful experience for me to be writing this story. And part of it is because I felt like I didn't have grit. You know, I saw this grit talk and I was like, well, I've changed my major seven times. I <laughs> wanted this in high school and want this in college. Now I'm not even sure if I want this for the next 40, 40 years. I thought back to some of my previous failures where I tried writing a book as a kid and really enjoyed it, but gave up. I'd even tried running away when I was 16 and gave up on that. Don't worry. I almost ran away when I was 16 as well. I think I was 15. <laughs> my uncle talked me out of it. He's like, what are you going to do? Leave your little sisters at home alone? And that's going to be the type of role model you're going to be? I was like, oh, you're right. They're the only reasons why I stayed. Did you even leave the house? Because I didn't even leave the house. I got out of the house. But, but like you, I didn't think through the details and logistics, right? You didn't think about your sisters. I didn't think about money or where to sleep right, or transportation. Yes. Where'd you end up? DuPont Circle, which is uncoincidentally where my protagonist ends up. So I lived in Centerville, Virginia, which is about 20 miles outside of Washington, D.C. And I think what I did is I escaped through the window because I couldn't leave through the door. I needed my parents to know that I had run away. The sad thing is, I don't even remember like what we were arguing about. I'm sure it was a stupid thing. Like I forgot to make my bed that morning. I had some change. I got in a Metro bus at the end of my neighborhood and that bus took me to the Metro station. And then that Metro took me to DuPont circle in Washington, DC. And, you know, I hung out, like I was under, I was in, you know, hung out in the park for a few hours under a tree was like, you know, angsty and contemplative, went to a bookstore and then just got bored. And just the thing, like senior year of college, I was like, damn, you know, I got bored of writing this book when I was 10. I got bored of running away. I've gotten bored with all of these majors and things. I need to really do something. And I felt compelled to write. And so that's what I decided to do. I decided I was going to write a book and didn't care if it got published or went to anybody. I just wanted to do it all the way through, start it and finish it. Was it a difficult process staying still and working through the entire thing? Oh, of course. I mean, it's not like, believe me, down and across in its current form, gone through many drafts, many iterations. It was hard. It was hard to stick with it. But I think I had that constant voice in my head nagging me. You can't give up. How ironic would it be if I gave up on a book about grit? Before we dive deeper, could you give us a snapshot of Down and Across. Sure. Down and Across is the story of Scott Ferdosi. He's 16 years old and he lives in a suburb of Pennsylvania and he just doesn't know what he wants to do in life. He's tried every club at school, done internships and read all these different books and made up different 5, 10, 20 year plans and none of them have panned out. And his parents are Iranian immigrants. And so they're like, come on, Scott, you need to study engineering because he's behind the colleges. They're like, you need to study engineering, medicine, or law. You've tried all these things. You don't have a passion. You're not especially gung-ho about anything else. So just be a practical person and do engineering or medicine. Scott's not sold. There has to be something out there that I feel passionate about. And so instead of doing the summer internship that they had set him up for, this the summer before his senior year of high school, he decides to run away. And he runs away to meet this big deal professor, Cicely Mallard. You can guess where I got that name from, but Cicely Mallard is the foremost expert on grit, which is like the latest pop psychology that his dad was telling him about. And Scott feels that 
maybe she can help him figure out what he's going to be gritty about. So he runs away thinking that he's just going to like go to DC for maybe a day or two, meet with Professor Mallard, get her to help him because she knows everything about grits and passion and come back. But of course, along the way on the bus, actually, he meets this girl, Fiora, who her life passion is to write crossword puzzles, but she loves crossword puzzles so much. And she's also really like interesting and adventurous and a student in DC. And she convinces him to stick around and have, you know, what turns out to be the summer of a lifetime. Have you reached out to Angela Duckworth to tell her about your book and like how it came about? I have. It's kind of a funny story because I had written this book it took me a year to write the first draft and another year to revise it. After I'd gone through maybe seven or eight drafts and I had an agent and we were about to go out on submission, Angela Duckworth's book, Grit, was coming out. And she had an event in New York. She actually had her launch in New York. It was like a big deal book. Like it was getting a lot of attention. I think she was going on like a 20-city tour. I'd done a lot of pre-publication publicity. But I was like, I'm going to go to this event and I'm going to bring a copy of my book. I'm going to tell her that I wrote this book and that she is a character in it and that she inspired it. And we're going to be best friends. That's what I'm imagining. And yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I went to the event. She was a wonderful speaker. I got in the signing line. It was very, very long. When it got to my turn, I'd obviously like rehearsed what I was going to say. But I like... <laughs> said it so quickly. Oh, no. I was like, how many of are going to I really think about you and I think you're the best person in the world who inspired me and I, I'm writing and now I'm about to go on submission and I think, I, I think this editor is interesting. Oh my God, oh my God. I'm ha-, You know, I was like, I was a mess. She was like, thank you? She took my manuscript and she, you know, she was obviously, she was very gracious and very kind, but like, I can't blame her. Like, I would have been freaked out, right? <laughs> this random reader comes in line and is like, I wrote a book and you're a character in it. That was a year and a half. We, but this is the thing. I followed up the next day with like a really long gush email because like I didn't gush enough the day before, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> she replied being like, thank you. Congrats. I was persistent, but not in a creepy stalker way. And that's what I realized. I very quickly realized like, wait a minute, Armin, you like totally ambushed her over there. <laughs> when I sold the book, I sent her a really thoughtful, like, hey, just wanted to let you know I sold it to Penguin. She was like, congratulations. Maybe she wrote an extra thing in there. Like, oh, he's not totally crazy. And I think... A year later, she had an event in the city, and I went to that, and at that point, my book was getting some buzz. We'd just gotten a good blurb, and I met her there, and she actually like introduced me to her husband there. Oh. She seemed like genuinely thrilled for me, and just a couple of days ago, she shot out a tweet, because I did an interview with NPR, which was really cool, and she tweeted about it, being like, want to let you guys all know about a really wonderful novel by a gritty author named Arvin. Oh. He inspired this book, and she's the queen of Britain. She's so inspirational to me. For her to call me gritty, that means the world. Congratulations. Thank you. It's funny because that kind of reflects Scott's experience with Cicely Mallard, too, where she doesn't bite the first time that he meets and says, I want you to help me. This is such a huge, huge accomplishment. I would be over the moon. I would probably screenshot that tweet and frame it up. I'm so happy. I love tidbits like that. Things that people probably don't often hear or know about. These are answers that I can't give in like a blog interview or a quick A, but we're having a conversation. It's awesome. Thank you so much for that snapshot of the book. I love the cover. It's beautiful. I like to see what's inside, like the hardcover part and the spine. Mm -hmm. I love what they did. Yes, it all feels so good, especially the spine and what they did with the yellow there. But yeah, I remember because I think the actual hardcover is gray. And I was 
confused at first, not when I got it, but when we were discussing it, because I was like, all right, what's it going to be? Are we going to make it blue or yellow? Because the cover is blue and yellow. Yeah. They're like, actually, we were thinking like a really cool, I forget if it was like space gray or cool gray. Oh, no, it's literally the color is called cool gray. It's tough to like get a hardcover color to match with the cover color. They're like, instead of trying to get close to that and then having a clash, like when you wear navy pants with a black suit, we should find a complementary color. This might be too much insight into like the hardcover matching process. But yeah, complementary is better than trying to make it match and then have it be like a little bit off. That's a good tidbit. So this color is actually called cool gray. It's called cool gray. Maybe even like the genre, because I guess, you know, I imagine like there's gray and then there are like buckets of gray and then maybe you have actual like specific color name. I think that genre is cool gray. It looks like kind of like a a very unsaturated teal. I think when I was describing it, I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, this is like a tealish gray. I'm digging it. I love this color. (laughs) And I cannot wait for listeners to get a copy of this and have it in their hands and inspect it as well. This is controversial, but I way prefer paperbacks to hardcovers. Really? Yeah, I don't like the dust jacket. I just think they're kind of extra. I think jackets are just super extra and unnecessary and so most of the time i take it off me too too. okay the thing is i love hardcovers but without the flap jackets yes exactly because i always mess it up anyway it ends up getting bent it looks like i probably threw it across the room which i I swear i did not but i'm reading i'd rather remove it so i don't feel i'm having anxiety worried about ruining the jacket itself probably shouldn't admit this, but if I really hate a cover, sometimes I'll just throw the jacket away. Like it's such a satisfying feeling to just throw it in the trash bin and be like, that's not my cover. I'm sure we have people from all sides of the political spectrum on this podcast, but I'm a flaming liberal and like not my president. I think in book world, you know, we practice empathy, something lacking in this administration, not my book jacket, not my president. I love that. That was so good. Want to get more into your stories? This is basically autobiographical. Yeah. Very autobiographical. Did it end up being what you always sought it out to be? That's a really good question. One I haven't been asked before because the answer is yes, it changed and it ended up like diverging from my story in a lot of ways. And like, that's just a book is supposed to work a certain way, right? It has to have tension, needs to keep keep the reader's interest and the characters need to have backstories and things like that. I mean, this was the book where I learned to write a book. My first draft was very raw and very authentic and kind of poorly written too. Of course, I went through 10, 11, 12 drafts before I even sold to Penguin. And a lot of that was trying to maintain the authenticity while fiddling with the structure to make it a better book. I'm the kind of person who loves to go off on tangents and has side thoughts and gets distracted. I remember stripping away a lot of those distractions and side thoughts in there to make it a better story. I know you see went through 10, 11 drafts. Who was there to help you along the way? I took a class early on at the 92nd Street Y in the city, which is this like community center. It's a Jewish community center on the Upper East Side. And that was helpful because that's where I workshopped my first 20, 30, 40 pages with other early writers. But then the main help was I had a couple of friends. So I just graduated school when I had written this first draft. And I had a few friends who had also just graduated school and were editorial assistants at publishing houses. I handed them copies, just asked for their thoughts. I had a couple of friends who were editorial assistants. Then I had just a couple of friends who were like really avid readers and writers. So I think I gave it out my first draft to like five or six people. That's where I got my first batch of feedback and revision. I had all these people really read it with care and tell me exactly what they liked and didn't like and what worked and didn't. And so I went through a few drafts there. And then I I met some people in the writing community. And how did you do that? Events. New York, there is an event every single night. Are we talking about panel discussions or like Barnes exactly. & Noble signings and stuff like that? Yeah, panel discussions, signings. And that's where I met other people who also gave me feedback. We just became friends and I've stayed friends with a lot of these people. 
So it was just, you know, me being my like inherent social self, I was able to get my work out there and have people read it. And then also, I mean, that probably counted for maybe four or five revisions, but another four or five revisions were just on my own. And that's because I was constantly reading, constantly studying the books that I've read. So I've actually become a much slower reader since I was a kid. And I think that's because it's not just for pleasure. I mean, it is for pleasure. I really enjoy it. Right. But it's also analyzing and learning now. Oh, for sure. Yeah. yeah. I'm the same way. I'm so freaking slow because I analyze each word, <laughs> let alone each sentence. I just gave my roommate one of my favorite Kalatasani books, not The Kite Runner. My favorite is his most recent, which I feel like is Is, is it The recent. Splendid Thousand? Not, not Thousand Splendid. So Thousand Splendid Sons is really good. So okay. my ranking of his three books is like, and the mountains echoed is number one. Oh. It's honestly more literary. It has all these points of views, but it's just a beautiful story that kind of gets you at the end. You don't think that it has you like emotionally wrapped around its finger, but it does. Wow. And yeah, I gave him that book and the first 50 pages, a lot of it was underlined. You'd be like, you know, it's just like, why, why is this random word, this random phrase over here underlined? I wasn't even underlining particularly beautiful sentences. It was literally just like, oh, I like that word. I like what he did yeah, there. Yeah, me too. I did the same thing. <laughs> So that was your favorite book. And how would you rate the others? I mean, they're all amazing. He's one of my favorite writers. Yeah. And the Mountains Echoed, number one, Thousand Splendid Sons, number two, and Kite Runner, number three. Wow, really? Damn, those must yeah. be so good then. <laughs> I need to check out the other yeah. two. Kite Runner, I also saw the movie and I was bawling like a mofo. I couldn't <laughs> breathe. I could not breathe. Do you watch the movie? I love the movie. I've seen it twice. The second time was with my mom pretty recently, actually. It was cool because she and I, could, I know she and I could like understand some of the Farsi, the Pashto. I will have to check out the other two. I'm super excited about that. Are there any other books that you were reading really closely during those last five revisions? Oh yeah. So another book I have underlined intensely <laughs> is The Fault in Our Stars. <gasps> oh, John Green. I love that book. He paints those characters so vividly from really early on, regardless. Uh, obviously the tragedy is at the center of that book, but I think it's also there's so much more than their tragedy, right? They're really rich characters. I mean, that's one of the books where I, John Green is kind of how I fell back in love with YA. I had a teenage sister. She's still a teenager for another two or three months. Happy <laughs> early birthday. Yeah, right. Now I was turning 20 in April, which I guess oh. that, that'll be pretty close to the podcast. Oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. April 8th. She was feeding me John Green novels as well as, you know, some other YA books. And I just devoured them. I think I read all five of his books in a six-month span. So Fault in Our Stars is your favorite John Green one? Yes, absolutely. I'm kind of a hipster with Khaled Hassani and that, like, I like his most known book least. But definitely for John Green, I am a fanboy for The Fault in Our Stars. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say it's like a complete switch. That's awesome. Any other books that we should be aware about that really impacted you? Two others. I guess it's kind of a funny story. It is Ned Vizzini. So that's one. And I'd read that in high school, but then reread it as I was writing this. I just love what he does where he takes the serious subject but injects humor in it. Similarly, Me, Earl, and the Dying Girl. Oh, I yes. I love that book. And again, it's a cancer story, so you wouldn't expect it to influence Down and Across. But I think just the tone. It's a teenager going through something really serious, but adding this levity to it. I'm so excited to get those listed because I feel like it'll really yeah. inspire a lot of our community members, too, to go through that, especially knowing how much it's helped you. Those are the books that influence Down and Across, right? Like, I, I'm very confident fact that those are four books written by male authors, but I think it's because I had a male protagonist. You can ask me for my other favorite books later and it'll be first. You need to reach out to those authors. I know that you got Khaled's blurb on your cover, but you should reach out to all of them and let them know that they've impacted your story. I feel like they would be sure. so moved. 
I really should. Also, the, the biggest compliment for an author. Before we get into the writing craft questions that some listeners have asked, I want to know what was your most emotionally difficult scene that you had to write? I would say, honestly, it was the ending. That's why it's tough to answer this question because I don't want to spoil that. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. It's not the very ending because I think the ending is sort of redemptive with the conflict between the characters. But there's this moment where my protagonist, everything goes to shit. Can I say shit? I am a sailor. I am a pirate on this show. You have no idea. Please join me. <laughs> this is your ship, so you can be the pirate. <laughs> So shit away, please. Yeah, so shit away. There's this one scene near the end where everything goes to shit and the protagonist just feels completely isolated and it's literally raining on him. That scene gave me the feels as I was writing it. I hope that it gives readers the same feels. Oh, I'm sure. They're going to feel all the feels with a capital F. Don't you worry about it. <laughs> I know you don't want to give it away, but is there a way that you could give, give us a glimpse into how you managed to get through it? I've written two books now, and so I can't say that I'm an expert on my own process, but just based on a sample size of two, I can <laughs> say that I get really, really invested in deep in my stories, mm -hmm. probably the last third of the book. By the time I hit page 150, 200, I'm writing eight, 10, 12 pages a day, and I'm just totally in their story. It's like all I can think about in the shower, in bed, as I'm eating, going throughout my day. I think that's the key, right? It's totally putting yourself in their shoes and immersing yourself completely to really feel what they're feeling. You'd be such a great method actor. I would if I could act. You have to <laughs> act before you can be a method actor. But at least the commitment is there. You're halfway there already. Also want to then segue into the most difficult time in your life. Well, first of all, do you mind me asking how old you are? 25. From your 25 years of life, what has been your difficult moment? I don't know if this is your experience with your particular Asian family, but I've noticed like Asian families really value privacy and secrecy mm. and not airing dirty laundry, right? Yeah, yep. I think broadly speaking, I think it's it's the cultural barrier, right? Talking to your parents and trying to compromise with them for them to see your point of view when you know that they grew up differently. They grew up not just in a different time, but in a different country and with a different culture. I am just as American as I am Iranian, if not more, because those have been my surroundings for 25 years. My parents are Iranian-American differently than I'm Iranian-American. And so I think bridging that cultural divide and trying to compromise with them when you know that at the end of the day, you're just on different planes. I think some of my tough moments have been there. I know you were saying that you kind of struggle like that at home, but was that something for you in school? 100%. You know, it's interesting because I, I blocked a lot of it out, I think. And I don't think it was ever terribly, terribly traumatic. I felt it, you know, especially growing up post 9-11, being Muslim and Middle Eastern. You hated who you were to an extent. Like you wish you didn't look like that terrorist or that crooked politician or whatever, and that people could understand that you're not the same thing. Was there a specific incident that you remember, especially when 9-11 happened, where you were specifically targeted in school or anything like that? I can't think of one in school, but I okay. do remember when I was my freshman year of college, I was in Hong Kong, an internship actually. It was New Year's Eve and I was trying to get a cab at like four in the morning or something. And yeah, some large British or Australian man grabbed me. <gasps> and fucking Muslims, and you're like, you know, it's like, you, you guys are terrible. You make all the cabs go away. You're in the world. Like, I'm going to kill you. And he <gasps> dragged me down the street. It was actually really scary. And I passed by some people. And this experience makes it in down and across in some way. I never got cut. But yeah, no, I, I got dragged like half a block. And eventually, I actually like, broke free because I was wearing a coat. It was New Year's Day. And I just managed to snaggle 
out of my coat and then just ran for blocks until I could finally get Oh my cab. god, I am so sorry that even happened. What a fucking asshole. This happened in Hong Kong and he was an expat. Yeah, it was a white dude. So you were by yourself? Yeah, this was, I mean, I try. I think I started looking for a cab at four and I, so I was living in like a dorm in Kowloon so none of the cabs would take me there and it was like, this was maybe 5 a.m. when that happened. I'm sure that no one in the street stopped because it's so late. Yeah, because I remember a couple of bystanders. Usually in Asia, it's so ingrained in the culture to just mind your business, mind your business. I don't want to speak for all Asian cultures, but my dad's side is Taiwanese and I've been to Hong Kong and I've seen, and it's just very apparent where it's like keeping to themselves. There was that famous psychology experiment where like some woman was screaming bloody murder and there were 27 people around. No one did a thing because they all thought that somebody else would handle it. Arvin, I'm so sorry that happened. That was on the more extreme end. I guess maybe that blocked out some of the microaggressions growing up. That is so traumatic. Did you get post-traumatic stress after that? Because my friend got robbed in Long Island and he had post-traumatic stress after that and he had to go see a therapist to help it. I blocked it out and I think I had to because I knew that if I told my mom about it, I just wouldn't be allowed to oh, travel no, she'll anymore. Oh no, she'll lock you up. She's like, forget it, you're yeah, not seeing the light of day. You are my son, yeah. you're staying here forever exactly. the rest of your life. I waited four years to tell her about it. It's like one of those FBI files they open up 30 years later. <laughs> We have a question by your friend Kat Cho. She says, hey, Kat. <laughs> she says, ask him what his favorite karaoke song is. LOL. Oh, my God. Oh, so I think I don't, I'm pretty sure. And it's not like I was like super drunk or anything. I just blocked this out of my memory because it got recorded and posted on Twitter. So you could, if you really want to know, you could like check Twitter and corroborate. But I think I sang a whole new, it was either a whole new world from Aladdin, like channeling my brown brother in <laughs> Aladdin or it was Taylor Swift I think I did sing Taylor Swift which Taylor Swift song one of the really upbeat ones because I did a <laughs> You're lot like, of like I was too drunk and head thrashing <laughs> okay like, I can see you rocking out <laughs> I was definitely rocking out maybe a little too hard that's so fun I love that so next question we have from Catherine Law she says I love the premise of this book and I'd love to know how you came up with it so we covered that which is great and she's like, I also really like hearing about challenges authors encountered in their own premises or ideas and how they work through or around them. So if there's anything you can say or share from that, I'm sure she'd appreciate it. Well, I'm working on a couple of projects right now, but when I recently finished and turned into my editor, I can't reveal the name or too much about it because it hasn't been announced yet, but it's about this girl in the near future and when I started writing it, I wrote it in the third person because, you know, I'm not female. And I wrote it in the third person thinking, I didn't really know what I was thinking. And of course, I had done a lot of research before even starting to write this book because I wanted to get the character right and her specific attributes and story. But I wrote the whole book in the third person. And then when I got it back, you know, I sent it to my agent. She was like, uh, there's something really weird about the point of view and connecting with this character. She was like, as an exercise, try writing the first chapter in the first person. And I wrote two lines and I was like, holy shit, this sounds so much better. I have to write this in the first person. And I realized that part of what had happened is that I remember in middle school, I wrote this piece for English class and it was also from a girl's perspective. And I'd written in the first person. And I remember reading it aloud to my entire class. And I think people were like snickering or chuckling. And my English teacher was like, why do you write a story from a girl's point of view? You're a boy. You should be writing boy stories. And that really affected me. I think I was like, okay, I guess I'm not allowed to write a girl's story. I think that's why I didn't let myself write this book, write this first draft in 
the first person point of view, even though that's the point of view I'm most comfortable with. And I think that's just like, where I'm voiciest. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to actually write this story the way that it deserves to be written. I'm glad that I went through this process because it was cool. So this is my process piece that it, writing in the third person let me come up with the story and the action and the things that happened before actually inhabiting the character. I think I would have felt really choked up if I had tried writing the first person in the beginning, but because I gave myself that leeway to destroy the third person, you're allowed to do this, then I was able to take it to the next level and take that risk rewriting in the first person. Got it. Ooh, love that. That was good stuff. I hear a lot of quotables <laughs> from that one. Ooh. Thank you for that. We have two more questions, but the fourth one, we covered it. So I'm just going to squeeze in this third and final one from Catherine sure. Maria. And she asks, does he know how it's going to end? Okay, so basically, do you know how it's going to end before starting to write? That's a good question. No, the answer is no. But I do know before I reach the end. So I'd say that I come up with the ending probably at least for my last, again, like I've, I've written two books and I've outlined a couple others that I'm working on. But I'd say no, probably around like two thirds of the way in, I figure out how the book is going to end and then I work towards that ending. Sorry, not two thirds, like one third, anywhere from one third to two thirds. But yeah, somewhere along the way. I generally know like what tone my book is going to end on. But I don't know like the specific scenes or action. Gotcha. Okay, and now she has something else a little bit more specific with along the same lines. How do you think of satisfying endings? I like them. I say this as a fan of Black Mirror, which has oh my god, Black Mirror, that, oh so good. Oh yeah, you leave every episode just being like, why do I exist in this right? world? place. Yes. I think books, because like you work so hard, right? It's not passive TV, it's active entertainment. You build out this world in your head as a writer while you crush that for your reader, this world that they've imagined, these characters that have become so real to them. So I almost feel like I owe it to readers to come out at least with a satisfying, somewhat hopeful ending. You're so sweet. You have to tie everything up. It can be end on a cliffhanger. There can be certain things that like maybe the reader comes up with on their home. Don't give them a shitty ending. <laughs> You're so sweet. Catherine Maria's last question is, do you do a lot of crossword puzzles? <laughs> I am terrible at crossword puzzles. So I do a lot of easy crossword puzzles. I had this app called Daily Celebrity Crosswords that I used to do a lot. Now I do crosswords with friends. You know, remember when I talked about tech personas and like yes. Debbie from Kansas being a tech persona? These are apps made for Debbie from Kansas. I am the Debbie from Kansas of crosswords. <laughs> I'm not your like, open the New Yorker every Sunday with a monocle like, solving the Times puzzle and five minute person. Give me a Julia Roberts clue. Give me a pop culture reference. That is my crossword. And that's an amazing way to wrap up. Before we end off, I want you to also share with us a few other titles of your favorite books, in addition to the ones you already shared that helped you directly writing down and across. Yes, yes. So I love, love, love The Hate You Give. Mm -hmm. It Andrew came out Thomas. last year. Yes. Andrew Thomas. It I see you guys are pretty tight. One of my good friends in the city is Adam Silvera, and he invited her and me and Becky Albertalli to Harry Potter World last summer, and Aww. we just befriended each other there, so that was so great. So I love Andy Thomas. I love Harry Potter. Like That's really where my love of in-depth reading came, because you grow really attached to those characters. Do you have craft books that you read? I actually don't read a lot of craft books. There's a blog post. I'll read it. I have not delved into craft books. Oh, growing up, my favorite book for a very long time was The Mixtophosomous Basilie Frank Weiler. It's by E.L. Konigsberg. I think that's how you see it. That book was about this brother and sister who run away to the Metropolitan Museum of Art. I'm sure I like was inspired to run away partly because of that. <laughs> I mean, hence why you ended up at a bookstore. Close enough. That's <laughs> perfect. Let's wrap it up with you telling us where we can find you on social media to say hi. Yeah, please say hi. I'm on Instagram. I'm on Twitter. 
Both of those are at Arvin Amati. Arvin, you've been so awesome. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks, yeah. This is really great talk. I had a very, very fun time. And that wraps up our episode with Arvin Amati. Arvin, thank you for that awesome conversation. It was so much fun getting to know you. Storytellers, thank you so much for hanging out and listening in. As always, please say hi to Arvin on Twitter at Arvin Amati and head over to his show notes page at 88cupsofteacom slash podcast slash Arvin dash Amati. Don't forget to also check out his Instagram stories takeover for 88 cups of tea by heading over to instagram.com slash 88 cups of tea. If you enjoyed today's episode or if it helped you in any way, I would love to ask you for your support in taking a moment to subscribe to 88 Cups of Tea on iTunes and please leave a rating and a review. Producing a podcast takes a lot of time and we put a lot of heart and soul into making 88 Cups of Tea the best that it can be. When you take those specific actions of subscribing, leaving a rating and a review, that really helps our show become more visible to new listeners who haven't heard of us before and we're really trying to get the word out about our podcast. Thank you so much for helping us grow our community. If you haven't yet, don't forget to join our private Facebook group if you want to hang out with fellow storytellers and listeners from 88 Cups of Tea. I am so excited to see you in there. You can find us at facebook.com slash groups slash 88 Cups of Tea. Have a wonderful and super productive rest of your week and I'll catch you next Thursday. Hey guys, it's me again. Thanks so much for listening in on 88 Cups of Tea. Go create something magical today and I'll catch you in the next episode. Bye.